2: You're listening to a podcast from The
0: Word. Cut the crap, Junior, he says, and put the hyperbole on ice. I concur thus. Sometimes it takes but one record, one cocksure magical statement to cold cock all the crapola and all-purpose wheat chaff mix and match to set the whole schmear straight and get the current state of play down, down, down to stand or fall in one. Dignified, granite-hard focus, and such statements are precious indeed. Can you remember when that came out, Dave? Because I can remember reading that. I can remember reading I was that. living in Brighton. It was, it was in February 1977, and it was a Nick Kent review in The Enemy. And I can remember reading it and being, being really, really knocked out and impressed. So this is the review of television's Marquis Moon. It's Marquis Moon. On import, as it was at the time. So, what was the date again? That was it, that would have been in February. It was February the eighth, I think, nineteen seventy-seven. I'm pretty wow. sure. And I can remember thinking at the time that the music press had the most, just it had so much influence, didn't it? That immediately everyone was running out and getting hold of this record if they could, and gathering around and listening to it. And and in I'm pretty much hundred percent of them agreeing with Nick Kent that it had completely changed the landscape. Uh, it kind of oddly, oddly enough, didn't, did it really? I mean, we're talking about this because uh, Tom Verlaine sadly died this week. That's Tom right, last night. Yeah, it was I mean, was the leader of um, the leader of television, and um, and you know the irony is, you know, as Nick Kent says in that review, review, sometimes it only takes one record. Yeah, that was the record, and then it didn't happen anymore, did it really? You know, there was television's marquee moon and then after that there were other television albums that seemed to have well no there was only there, there was that and then there was adventure wasn't there and then they didn't make it one until about 19 the early 90s when they with the reunion so actually part of the attraction was that they it was just a very small number of singles and those two records which had a very very different in fact the second record wasn't even that good actually they had careful on it didn't they, they had foxhole but it was marquee moon which was the one and and the real impact of that was just, as far as I can see, that it changed the whole relationship with the guitar solo, didn't it? You know, the the three, the two guitars and the bass were just these interweaving melodies and it was an embroidery of sound. At no point did they do that kind of standard, you know, Thin Lizzy thing of saying, right, this is the guitar solo. It was just a I just really an interwoven... I mean, if you look at the groups that came after that, whether it was, um, I don't know, Gang of Four or... Even echoing the Bunnymen, or or you know, dirty Column, or I mean, just most of those groups actually in the in the kind of what I suppose you could call post punk landscape stopped using the guitar as being the solo you know, instrument, and it just became part of a part of the material of the song. And, and also the, the sound of television was amazing. It took ages at coming to... Fact, I read a really interesting thing last night that Richard Williams posted, reposted, which is him talking about going with Brian Eno to New York and making demos for Ireland because they wanted to sign... Do you remember that? They wanted to sign television to Ireland. And, uh, and they painstakingly made all these demos which Tom Verlaine didn't like because he said they were too cold. And they didn't put them out, they didn't sign to Ireland, in fact. So he had an incredibly clear idea of, you know, what he wanted the group to sound like. And there's another a really interesting bit in the, in the Nick Kent review where he says, um, Verlaine was apparently so overwhelmed with paranoia that he activated the policy of never properly enunciating the lyrics to unrecorded songs in performance for fear that plagiarists might steal his lyrics before they have been set to wax. It's amazing, isn't it? Oh, Very unusual. Doesn't he also? Re- I haven't got the review in front of me. You have. Doesn't he also mention in that review uh, the kind of antecedents of of the television sound? And doesn't he mention Fairport Convention? Oh, hang on. I'll have to and get- I, 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 th- I think I think he does. Well, if he doesn't, I yeah, think I'm sure he o- does. Yeah. Other other people did. Yeah. Um. Because I think the interesting thing about it as a sound was it It owed quite a lot to people like, Fairport Convention's a sailor's life from Earn yeah. uh, Half Bricking. And also the recordings of Country Joe and the Fish. Yeah. Ba- Barry Melton, the guitar player there. And also other, another San Francisco psychedelic group, Kaleidoscope. Oh, yeah, 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 um, yeah. And all those guys that, you know, used to play in that kind of, Pseudo Eastern fashion, yes, uh, which has a certain amount in common with uh, with the uh, Marquee Moon. And yeah, well, Marquee Moon e. also based on because I mean, Tom Waits was obsessed with Stan Getz, wasn't he? And then uh, later on with with Miles Davis and John Coltrane. So a lot of those were kind of jazz scales and jazz uh, intervals, which is again completely unlike what most people were playing. Yeah, so uh, oh, it was fantastic. It was just interesting seeing what, what a huge reaction that record had. Such an effect. Zoe, Zoe Howe wrote a novel once called Shine On Marky Moon. Yeah, remember? that's right. It that was such a great title. <laughs> she did. I've got here, actually, um, I went to see them, and it, this must have been, yeah, Saturday the 28th of May, and it must have been 1977. Yeah. At the Hammersmith Odeon television, and, uh, and it was emceed by... Andy Dunkley, the living jukebox. Oh, God. Because he was still being billed at the time. Yeah. Tickets were. Okay, this was the hot ticket in London that that evening, that weekend. They started at £1.50. Yeah. And they went to the dizzying heights of £2.50, only for the really wealthy people who could afford £2.50. And who was the support group, Mark? Television with the headliner. Who was the support group? I'll tell Is you. Because it, it was someone who went on to be enormously successful. It would have been. It like was it. somebody who was probably was already being enormously successful at that point. It's Blondie. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, okay. And that's the first time I saw Blondie.
2: God, all that
0: for £1.50. Oh, <laughs> okay. <Well, laughs>
2: That's I think incredible. I think I might even
0: have had a two pound fifty ticket. <laughs> My god, that's astonishing! It's it pretty astonishing, uh, you know, because that was just oh, they came from New York, therefore, you know, I mean, that's the interesting thing about, about punk rock and you know, all that stuff arrived from America as if it was all the same. Well, it wasn't, it was widely, wildly it's different, unbelievably <laughs> different, yeah, you know, completely. The, the, that, and the other uh, thing about television was there was no kind of stage act. I think Richard Hell was... No. One of the many reasons he was actually booted out was that he moved around too much on stage, wasn't he? He was too old school. They just stood there and played, you know. They did. They absolutely just stood there and played. Um, so that's... Um, Crikey, Mark, that's almost 50 years ago. I know, I know. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Things you discover about Dark Side of the Moon. Dark Side of the Moon came out pretty much exactly 50 years ago today, didn't it, I think? Things you discover about it. I either knew and had forgotten or never knew that there was a record called Dark Side of the Moon. By, Med- Medicine by Medicine Head. By Medicine Head. And they were going to call it Dark Side of the Moon and then scrapped that idea because somebody already had done it. When Medicine Head's record did fantastically badly and no one was even aware that it had been out, they called it Dark Side of the Moon. Was it going to be Eclipse or something? They had a new name for it. Oh, yes. i tell you the other odd thing. I, 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 I also yesterday, but yesterday, uh, I was um, listening on a streaming service, and this is presumably on all streaming services, two Pink Floyd playing at the Rainbow um, in 1972. And what they do, they're effectively playing Dark Side of the Moon. Pretty much all the songs are there. I think this is early Feb, 19... 19- yeah, they played all of it before they recorded it. I know, but the idea that they had it... Now they had it, you know, pretty much done and dusted in February nineteen seventy-two. That means that they wrote it, or Roger Waters wrote it, when in nineteen seventy-one, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they they had it all lined up, and and it's such a change from the from the sixties to the seventies when if you had an idea in the sixties, you just got it out as soon as possible. And then the big change in the 70s was, no, you absolutely took your time. So they had that thing pretty much done in February 1972, and they didn't put it out, and they didn't record it until later that year. It took a long time doing it, playing around with sound effects, all kinds of things, polishing it up, and then put it out in, in, in March 1973. You know, it's pretty much two years later, really, yeah. isn't it? And it's an extraordinary thing. And um, and they'd been used to LPs kind of coming and going in quite a short space of time. You know, they, everybody was very aware of what somebody's latest record was, and therefore they were never aware of the record before, really. They'd forgotten about that totally. And they're expecting another one to come along in three months' time or whatever. And the big thing, Dark Side of the Moon was a change in that. Because I started working in a record shop in uh, in seventy four, and uh, and I can remember the first person I ever met from the NME was Steve Clark. Oh yeah, if, you remember Steve Clark? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I um, Steve Clark. I if Steve, Steve was listening, <laughs> Steve was kind of tall and, and and handsome and slightly posh, and so. And so the people, other people on the were always used to snigger about him behind his back because he was tall and handsome and slightly posh. And, um, And anyway, he came into the record shop because he'd been sent to do a story about the fact that Dark Side of the Moon was still in the chart over a year later. And this was kind of unheard of. And they said, apart from real exceptions like the soundtrack of The Sound of Music, it didn't hang with rock albums. And so the idea was it must be around about selling its millionth copy. Therefore, I'm going to hang around on the browsers... Wait until I see somebody pick it up and buy it and then interview them. And we'll run a story about you're the millionth, you know, buyer of, of a copy of Dark Side of the Moon. That's the way editors <laughs> think. Which, <he> do, <laughs> which he a really good duly story. Did. He yeah. duly did this. And I thought it was I thought it was terribly impressive. Shall I tell you another interesting pop fact about Dark Side of the Moon, which we all use as our kind of um, you know, our expression of uh you know, if you want to say a record's just done incredibly well commercially it's like dark side of the moon dark side of the moon never got to number one in the uk no never did it got to number two (laughs) i don't know what it was that kept it off number one it went in the chart i think it came out and then it went back in and it stayed in and it stayed in and it stayed in and it's just absolutely remarkable if you go and look at the um the chart placings of Dark Sun of the Moon, which you can, you know, historically. It's it's just amazing. It goes 23, 21, 12, 24, 19, yeah. 17, <laughs> yeah. 9, 19. Just up and a you know, and it, it reminds you of when people run those stories about... Uh, Santa is not Santa off the charts, off the top of the charts, you know. Everybody's obsessed by being top of the charts, aren't they? It's way overrated. The most important thing about charts is staying in them. If you're in them, it means every bloody week somebody's turning up, you know, and you're selling, like, in those days, probably 5,000 copies a week in the UK alone or something.
1: I that's can't remember what how you it's sold rich. now.
0: I think it's sold something four and a half million in the UK alone. But it has been overtaken bizarrely by What's the Story Morning Glory by Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't realise. Thriller, I knew about Queen's Greatest Hits, obviously, but you know, and Adele's Twenty One sold more than that. But the thing but, I remember about it coming out was that there was there wasn't really any promotion. They didn't promote no. it. They didn't go out and talk about it. In fact, there was a launch party, which I don't think they turned up to. One of them turned up, they, oh, and right? Because the, they didn't and have the planet, any sound at the Planetarium. Right. There's only one who, yeah. I think, Nick Mason turned Nick up. Nick Mason, yeah. To be polite. Uh, and the rest of them didn't bother. But it was all about, just word of mouth, wasn't it? I can remember going round to people's houses and you'd sit there and you would listen to the entire thing yeah, in yeah. its entirety, like, yeah, like watching a movie. Definitely. Uh, and that was really, really unusual. Because before that, you just played things and you just think, well, let's go back and listen to that track again. But you didn't touch it, you know. Extraordinary, really. And the other story that I I, I love about that record, which I, in fact, I think you put in your Abbey Road book, was the one about Claire Torrey. Like, oh, Claire yeah. Torrey comes in for Great Gig in the Sky and just does a a vocal, and she gets a, I can't remember what she got, £30 session fee or something like that, and then assumes that that's kind of it. And then it was in a record shop in Chelsea, wasn't she, when it came out, and heard them playing that song and thought, that's me, yeah, you know, and realised that they she was pretty much the star of the entire track, wasn't she? Well years later there was a legal action and she is now credited as a as a co-composer of that uh, of That's that got to be worth having. Okay, I'm sure it's very much worth having even even in this day and age. Absolutely. Um, but no she got double the money because it was a Sunday morning that she did that, and she did the session. That's right. Um would have been 15 quid. And she couldn't do the Saturday night because she was going to see Chuck Berry. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and she just turned up and they they just played the uh, played the track and said, just sing over the top of it. What what do I sing? Just sing. So she kind of starts extemporizing. And apparently she using that, the word baby, did not she? She uses the word baby. Roger Waters takes her aside as a quiet word, as we don't we don't approve that. Quite right yeah, so, appalling. <laughs> There's nothing nothing less pink Floyd than the use of the word. Any kind of endearment, really. Absolutely. <laughs> let, let alone baby. Yeah. And, um no, it is and the other thing was that McCartney and Linda McCartney were recorded, weren't they? For because they were in the wings, I think, were in the studio next door. And they went in and recorded them for us and them as possible use and us and them. Was it the people? They recorded talking. every they recorded every voice they can get. Everybody in the building just talking about entering kind of questions about when were you last drunk or you know yeah because uh, that's Henry because Because not saying I was very drunk or it was I can yes it? that's yes, Henry McCulloch right survived yeah. Paul McCartney's stuff was not used because they thought it was a bit too calculated a bit too arch um and the voice that you hear at the end of it is the thing that fascinates me about Dark Side of the Moon is oh, you is hear you hear the sound of Abbey Road it's not the doorman it's the security man and um uh, it's called Jerry, I think, and Jerry uh, O'Driscoll, wasn't that? Jerry O'Driscoll, yeah. His Irish voice at the end of it says, "Matter of fact, there's no. What is it? There's no dark side of the moon, really. Matter of fact, it's all dark. Yeah. And and it just, you know, the idea that something just kind of casually said into a Ewra tape recorder in 1973." is still with us still today. completely etched in stone. <laughs> still, no, no. It's, it's part of the drama of it, you know. know. And uh, now the, um, the woman who does the, they do the uh, airport announcements, there's a lady called Hazel Yarwood. Oh, yeah. All these stories were in my best-selling book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Road, Actually, um, Hazel Yarwood's a rather grand lady who used to run the cutting department um in the 70s and uh she uh, had been an actress and so she had an excellent speaking voice and also a bit of a cut glass accent yeah. and so in then in those days if you wanted sound effects you had to make them yourself you know <laughs> you couldn't dial them up from somewhere and so she regularly would get called in to just read this script or whatever and so hers is the voice saying you know, whatever about your 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 plane is late or whatever it is, because um, yeah, they just use the people who happen to be in the building, you know. So that's the that's the amazing thing to me about Dark Side of the Moon. It sounds like Abbey Road. It sounds like the old house. You know what I mean? Yes. The the sound of the footsteps running for the plane are the sound of a tape operator running round the parquet floor of Studio 2 in what we used to call gym shoes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love I actually that playing idea. the building yeah. as an instrument. Playing the building as an yeah, instrument. Yeah. Uh, that's it's a lovely instrument. idea. The Word
1: Podcast. Clearly, there is no plan.
0: So we're joined by Alex Gold. How are you Hello. doing, Alex?
2: I'm good. How are you Hello, Magic. You are Hey, right? hey, hey, hey. I'm very well.
0: Now, we talked last week uh, about, uh, and what did we call it? it it's, not it's not you. you, not it's, you it's me. me. And we we're talking about LPs, classic LPs that we know are classic LPs, but we just don't happen to like them. They don't, we don't warm to them, do we? And, uh, you know, I think I, what did I nominate? Blood on the Tracks and, um, and I said the only Steely Dan record I don't really like is Asia. You know, I can't remember which other ones I I chose, but it's interesting the I feedback and Cat Stevens, just things that are really well known. Everybody apparently approves of. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting the feedback. Uh, you know, we got to that actually. Lucas Hare, interestingly enough, Lucas who who is involved with the uh, the Bob Dylan uh, podcast is it Rolling Bob and uh, and no greater fan than uh, uh Bob Dylan than he he agreed with me about Blood on the Tracks he feels the same way about Blood on the Tracks which I was quite gratified uh, to to learn it wasn't just me being being awkward but uh, it's interesting the stuff that people came back with said they had very similar feelings about I've got one here It sounds... Oh, right, yes. ...by by the Beach Boys. More than one person said they have never been able to understand what was so remarkable about this record. And I, Well, it's remarkable technically, isn't it? It's an amazing sound, but you're just saying there isn't much warmth. Well, no, I wasn't saying that particularly about that. Other people were were saying this, but I tell you what, it just struck me. I'm looking, this is my copy of this that I've had since 1966. And... And when you bought this at the time, it, it was the new Beach Boys album. I mean, you know, everybody loved the Beach Boys, you know, it wasn't a big legendary piece of work or anything. You know what I mean? Nobody approached it with, you know, awe and reverence. Whereas nowadays people do. And so anybody who comes to the Beach Boys pet sounds in the, in the 21st century is coming acutely aware of all that stuff. aren't they? Yeah. All that kind of baggage that you've do you got think to the love It damages it somewhat. Well, I'm not, listen, it's not damaged at all. You know, it is what it is. It's a wonderful piece of work and so forth. But I can imagine how, I can imagine how some people might be disappointed, you know, um, and it, and because if you look at it, it's really odd. You know, it's got, it's got sloop John B in the middle of it for the start which is kind of a really odd thing. And if you look at the cover here, and it was only yesterday that I really noticed this. (laughs) If you look at the cover, which, of course, is, you know, features the Beach Boys, it surely is the worst cover. It's uh, Absolutely unbelievable. This was this was the time of records like Sgt. Pepper. Was it? I mean, no, it, it wasn't. Yeah, it it wasn't was earlier. No, it was just before, no, but it's still, all the same, it's still absolutely shocking. The idea of pet sounds. Let's send them to a petting zoo, whatever that is. You know, it's just awful. It's funny you should say this because uh, just bear with me. I've got I've dug out this morning a few other records that came out in 1966 around the time that the Beach Boys. Put out pet sounds, OK. There we go. Revolver. Yeah, right. <laughs> Revolver. A nice. complete statement, you know what I mean? That cover. that was really radical yeah. at the time. you know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's not even a proper picture of them. you know it's an illustration. And it's got a moody picture of them in the studio, on the back. you know. Look at this. The small faces, there they are. you know that came out around about at the same time. First record of the small faces. cheery. Picture of them in front of a in front of a, a you know wall chalked with graffiti, Bob Dylan blonde on blonde, Look at that bar on it. blurry picture, <laughs> wow. you know a, you know haircut to the fore, and. Rolling Stones Aftermath. You know what I mean? They were all com- completely kind of. But also, those are all studio controlled, really thought through portraits, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's just a 35 millimeter snapshot, isn't it? That People not cle- even looking at the cowards. everything about it. It's clearly the best shot they got on the day. I mean, that troubles me somewhat. <laughs> no, no. And also, if you look on the back, the pictures on the back are pictures of the of the Beach Boys on tour in Japan. And you know, they have no relevance to the to the sound of the record inside. you know what I mean? Because Brian Wilson was staying at home in the studio in in Los Angeles, making that record. So the people who actually made that record aren't really on these pictures. The people who made that record were the were the wrecking group, you know what I mean yeah. and um and if you look at the cover, the the list of the titles, the two of them are, are picked out in white, Sloop John B. And Caroline, no. For no reason. Yeah. Well, Sloop John B was the hit at the time, you know. So it was it was the it was the last gasp of the old record company way of packaging records. Yeah, yeah. Which was put the singles to the fore. You know what I mean? Whereas you got the you got the Beatles and you got the Rolling Stones, no singles on those albums at all. They didn't put those things out as singles. And so, you know, it's still a kind of odd record to listen to. And it's even it's got a couple of instrumental tracks on it, hasn't it? Where they clearly just didn't get round to writing vocals Uh, and and it just, I would just put it in there, in there. Let's go away for a while. That is really nice and all that. But I can well imagine somebody coming to that in, in the year, you know, 2023. And being baffled by. It.
2: And being being baffled. Yeah, it's true. Well, I, I don't think it's aged sa- age well the same way as, say, Revolver's aged well. There's a lot of stuff on Revolver that I think could have perhaps have been written last week, last year, last five years still. Whereas, Pet Sounds is definitely a record of its time, and maybe that's got something to do with it as well. Yeah, there's there's no filler on Revolver, is there? The whole thing is completely thought through. But it's oddly timeless as well. You know, Taxman doesn't necessarily need to be a song that was written in the 60s, you know, whereas... Um, whereas Sleep John B, you, it, it just wouldn't have been written any later, would it? I mean, it's it, it's kind of preserved in amber. Whereas Revolver, well, it's kind of, kind of old, old folk song. Sleep
0: John B was a real just an old tune, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's redid. Yeah, yeah. So that was a, you know records where we we said you know it's not it's not you, it's me. But now going completely to the the other end of the of the spectrum. Those were records that we, we accept are classics, but we just don't want them to. What about records that we love with all our heart and soul, despite being acutely aware that they are unmitigated shit? <laughs> <laughs> you go first. Go on, go on. I'm going to go first, and I've got it here. And I'm not the only person... Who loves this record. I know I know there are other people who love this record. Uh, and this is, um Gary Kemp only the other day <clears throat> saying on social media that it was the greatest live record ever made. Well, it's not Gary, but you know, it, it's it's an and I know Danny Baker loves this record, and I know Mark Ellen loves this record, but it is it is the epitome of heads down no nonsense mindless boogie <laughs> and it is humble pies oh no performance rocking the film war, which is oh, wow. their, their double album made in uh when's it made 1972 something <laughs> like that yeah and it, it is just a kind of advertisement for their utterly over the top stage act as it was at the time, I it totally is. disagree. That's a great record, surely, isn't it? Well, I don't need no doctors. You got "Hallelujah, um, I love her so" and all that. I know, but do you need another version of "Hallelujah, I love her so"? You know, yeah. The point, the point being, would it be? I, and listen, I love this record, Mark. Let's not, let's not make any bones about this. I love this record. Yeah, yeah. But I could sit down and write a withering review of how terrible it is (laughs) with no trouble at all. You know what I mean? It's excessive.
2: It's completely up itself. The The whole of Humble Pie's herb to me just sounds like Steve Marriott getting it out of his system. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: But I can understand
2: why you might love it. I, I, I
0: love it. I love it. Listen, I've loved it ever since it came out. But I know in my heart, if, if I can sit down and tell you why, you know, I don't know, um, Steely Dan's pretzel logic is a masterpiece. I can similarly tell you why Humble Pie's performance rocking the Fillmore is unmitigated shit, but I love it. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, the pop music has always been full of that kind of, uh, for the, uh, the examples of that kind of thing. What about you? Have you got any magic? What do you got magic?
2: Me (laughs) well, all right. Strike me down, but I'm gonna say um, I'm fully aware of just how loathed and how terrible this record is. But I adore it. I absolutely adore it. It's "Be Here Now" by Oasis.
0: All right, okay, okay. okay.
2: I, I know how bloated it is and how overblown, and you know the first single seven minutes long. And the first minute of that was just Morse code and helicopter noises. I mean, everything that's, that could be wrong with a record it's got on there. There's no, there's no bass frequency. It's all really middly and kind of muddy, but it just, to me as a, as a teenager, it sounded like five guys having the best time ever and just not caring what anybody else thought. And I'm sorry, but that was, that was what got, that was why I got into music because I wanted to have the best time ever, not care what everybody else thought. (laughs) And this is the absolute right or wrong. It's the absolute epitome of that. And I don't think no, I don't think anyone before or since has ever captured that, just captured that cotton wooled arrogance before or since. And to me, that's still wholly appealing. And it's got one great ballad on as well. The girl in the dirty shirt, which is a beautiful song. Um, Amidst all the fluff and the bluster and the eight-minute singles, it's um, it's 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 the it's the much maligned gift that that, that just keeps on giving to me. I'm afraid it's interesting. <laughs> it's
0: interesting that it's probably got something in common with my choice. That it, you know, humble pie, a performance rocking the Fillmore, is four blokes having the time of their lives. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it is, and that's that's the attraction and, of it. And that was the attraction of it. You go home on Monday, yeah. And, and when you were, you know, you in 23 or whatever, you thought, oh god.
2: From this well that's, that's fe- it all the great music takes you to another place doesn't it and makes you believe that everything can be so much better still and that's what it does i mean that's what the E.L. E&R does for me.
0: no but more to the point is it not the case my <laughs>
2: that
0: that and it's a huge part of popular music is is fulfilling the fantasies of mainly males you know yes. what i mean it's kind <laughs> Guys in their teens and early 20s. Guys in their teens imagine themselves kind of launching into that opening ceremony <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a fender in front of 50,000 people going mental. Including a lot of girls. A lot of you girls. Fans. A lot of girls, precisely. <laughs> That's what it is. What's yours, Mark? Mine, the, mine's... These are not classics. They really are very, very kitchen. When you said utter, utter shit, I mean, I'm afraid to I've gone for it. I had a couple, I went through the attic uh, this morning. One of the possibles I was thinking of was the Jabriath record, but it's not completely terrible. Oh, do you know I'd never heard that right? No, no, it's not completely terrible. No, this you, is not much I really love. No, just go back. Just one. Jabriath, I never knew you had that. Well, I just got it. I don't know. I must have bought How it How did you get that? I don't know. I just, there it is. So you when know, did that come collection? out? Gibraltar was, was was it? Oh, God. 75 or something like that. 73, I think. Oh, right. 1973. I know. So I just kind of felt the fondness for Gibraltar because he was the kind of uh, poor man's David Bowie, wasn't he? This was a record that, again, it's not objectively shit. It's actually quite a good record, I think, which is the Telex album, who were a kind of poor man's craft work. And uh, I thought they were absolutely famous. It was late 70s, and they made songs like Moscow Disco, you know. Mm. But, uh, Dave, this really is a shocker. An absolute shocker. It's the Hello album. I'm sorry. Oh! (laughs) Hello? Yeah! No, I kind of had a real fondness for... Lamb, I quite I quite like sweet. They're quite like mud. you know. And hello put this record up. They had hits in about 1974, 75. You know, and there are hits on this. I think there's New York Groove, New York Groove, of yeah, course. and there's Machine Gun Hustle, I think, and uh, <laughs> Carolina. Yeah, you know. and they had a song called Games Up. None more seventies than Games Up, which I think was a cover of a song that the Arrows had done. Uh darling don't even know your name but you'll soon be my latest flame and everything about them I mean I know they were one of the worst practitioners of an absolutely dreadful era and the clothes oh my god they're wearing kind of bulging denim waistcoats covered in badges and sounds fringed, like my sat- Saturday flared, yeah just <laughs> fringed flared trousers I mean can you see that they am just holding up the back slightly, perfect, you know. perfect. it's kind of slightly camp biker chic one of them's on a Kawasaki and they're awful feathercut T-shirts, but I don't know there was something about there was something about Hello that I quite liked, and I appreciate that they're absolutely awful. But that's it's not a classic, but that's what I'd go for. And one of them actually was the was the brother of Crisscross of Ultravox, I think, Jeff Is Allen. It really? There you go. Yeah, I think so. Jeff Allen was the I think he was. Wow, pretty, pretty sure. So that's mine. Sorry, but people, anyone listening, send in your um, suggestions. Come on down. Come on down and join it. The Word
1: Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub.
0: Well, this is a first. We've been joined by a a, a birthday guest, Kevin Rose. Kevin, lovely to see you. But all birthday plans are on
1: hold because you've got COVID. That's grim. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, first time for everything. How are you feeling? All right. I'm feeling a bit better today. Yeah, I felt bad a few days ago. I tell you, yeah, that was a out of nowhere. But um, now my wife's got it,
0: Oh, oh dear I it. So oh, That's oh. grim.
1: So yeah. But anyway, all that'll
0: be back on track soon, I'm sure. So uh, have you got a a, a, a conversational log
1: to, to to chuck on the fire? I was um yeah, I'll just quickly show you something. Um so before she got COVID, my wife very kindly bought me this. Oh, oh yeah, the, uh, great. The new box set. Oh. Which I haven't listened to yet, but I've got tomorrow off, so um, I've well, got off anyway. No, but but uh, <laughs> listen to. But I was thinking the other day, actually, before I got that, that how excited I still feel over forty years on, um, hearing the intro to Tomorrow Never Knows. Mm. Genuinely excited, I feel, and I wondered if there was any songs that still, when you hear the intro. Still get you excited in a way that... Ooh, got Barbara O'Reilly.
0: Would that be a possible Barbara O'Reilly by The Who? It's got an amazing intro. Well, you know, the thing about pop music, is all about intros, isn't it? It's all about auspicious beginnings. That's what it is. You know, if you don't grab people in the first, you know, 10 seconds, you never grab them at all, do you? Was it Oscar Hammerstein, the the musical composer, said, give them a good opening number and they'll forgive you anything. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, so I think about all those great stone records, you know, satisfaction. I mean, even through things like Start Me Up. I'll tell you what's a yeah, great yeah. one. I'll tell you what's a great one. Look at all women, and it's probably sure. ne- no, he's probably the greatest of all, is tumbling dice. Nice. Yes. That, ooh, that bending chord that then kind of goes straight into the into the groove. It's absolutely extraordinary. You know, you, you got to have that kind of thing. I mean, Barbara O'Reilly was a really odd, different case, wasn't really because it was, it was deliberately built up as a drama, you know, as a kind of two minute drama in itself, wasn't it? That whole, that whole thing. And that was the era of the LP rather than the era, the era of the single. But yes, I mean, tomorrow, the thing, other thing that strikes me about tomorrow never knows when I hear it nowadays is just how fast it is.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, everybody, everybody thinks, "Oh, it's trippy."
1: <laughs> and no, it's really peppy, isn't it? You know, yeah, right? yeah. it I flies think, along. I think it's the anticipation as well. When you just hear that sort of sitari note, and you just have all all of your expectations and thoughts by the anticipation of a what's coming in the song, but also what comes after it. I think as well, without reading too much into it, it's such a it's such a indicator of things to come, isn't it? So, just stylistically and culturally, I think. So you
0: you've got that all set up for tomorrow. So what's yeah. your plan to just sit down there and start at the beginning and work I your way so. through? Yeah, it's
1: got a book. I think I haven't really taken it apart yet because my hands are so germy. But um, oh dear, it's got oh, the Giles good. the Giles Martin stereo remix, which is supposed to be quite sympathetic, not too out there. So that's supposed to be good. And it's got a book and it's got outtakes and uh, yeah. So I took Friday and Monday off. And Friday, I was in bed, and tomorrow I'm gonna. Uh,
0: tomorrow, tomorrow never, tomorrow, never knows. Never knows. <laughs> 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 Have you heard any? So you've not heard
1: any of it yet? No, no, no. Oh, because well, look out
0: for the look out for the demos of Yellow Submarine. Absolutely uh, okay. extraordinary. Do you know anything about this or not? No, 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 because uh, did a John Lennon song, and it's a John Lennon acoustic waltz time song about 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 his own life. Actually, isn't it? It's, it's a. It. Uh, I, I never realised that. I thought that they'd just written that originally for Ringo, and it was going mm. to be this kind of song. But no, it was adapted from this. Uh, in the land where I was born, no one cared. I think it is. I
1: can't remember the exact one. right. Extraordinary. Absolutely yeah, tri- extraordinary. Got a treat. Uh, Installed. Yeah, you have, you have.
0: Yeah, you got a treat. You got a treat. So sit in bed and get yourself something eggy on a tray <laughs> and a jigsaw. Some <laughs> lucas <laughs> If they still make it. <laughs> and uh, and you've got the box set of a revolver, and if that runs out, turn on Talking Pictures TV, and there'll probably be yes. an old Dirt Bogard film in yeah. the middle of the afternoon, you know. So you've got to it, the, these are the these are the few upsides of being yes. a little bit under the weather. Yeah. <laughs> That's sure. Yes. The world's so, my lobster. Yes, so, the world's <laughs> season <used> your lobster. <laughs> well, look, have the best birthday you possibly can, and yeah. uh, and very nice to talk to you. I have a birthday recommendation actually. Oh, oh go on, yeah, go
1: on, yeah, go on, go on. I record, which, yes. Which is you probably may have heard this because um, I think it came out in 2016. A friend of mine recommended it to me, and it's this. So you can't really tell. It's Jim O'Rourke, simple songs. All
0: oh, right. he
1: was—he's a, a guy, sort of a New York guy. He's—he uh, lives What's in. What's his
0: he, name? Gino O'Rourke. Jim O'Rourke. Jim O'Rourke. Rourke. Sorry.
1: He played with Sonic Youth for a bit in their latter days. He's a quite. He—he he has a. A life as an avant-garde composer listen to in japan yeah. but this album is really really good it's really conventional songs but with some as a friend of mine said he said there's a lot of interesting coders on it And which um but i think it reminds me of harry nielsen in places it's got lovely orchestration guitar playing it's recorded in japan but i really recommend giving it a listen i don't think you'll be offended so yeah it's simple song <laughs>
0: Simple songs by Jim O'Rourke. I'll look that up. Won't be offensive. I'll look that up. Thank you for that. Thanks for that recommendation. I'm sure other people will will listen as well. All the very best. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. The Word Podcast, walking the digital dog since 2007. So we've had a busy week talking to people, haven't we? We We have. Talked to Sid Griffin, uh, who's on tour uh, later this year with the Long Riders. I was very taken with the idea of. That Sid formed the Long Riders, or was one of the people who formed the Long Riders in 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 the 80s, you know, forty years ago. Wow. And uh, and sadly, one of them died a couple a year or so ago, didn't he? Uh And so the remaining members have decided, you know, they've been, they've made a record and they're going on the road. And it's the idea that that uh, that they're kind of no hard feelings anymore. You know what I mean? it can just it's a free hit isn't it there's something yeah, he said, just he was, enjoy this he was so enthusiastic about it just this idea that that uh that all the pressures were off really yes. you know, you've got nothing to prove you know whatever you were going to prove you've already achieved you know you're just going out there to see a few old people who you know loved you back in the day and it's just meeting old friends and there's just it was kind of like a I mean, what were you saying, like a golfing holiday? It was right? like a golfing weekend, you know, yeah. a gentleman of a certain age on a golfing weekend. I know, and you're getting away, getting out of the home, and you're going abroad, <laughs> and you know, just the whole thing with absolute joy. It's and again, anyone who change. came to see you would be enormously into you. are not trying to convert anybody anymore, you know, you, that all that's done. I like that. You know, I thought it was a very appealing idea, the idea that, uh, you know, Chaps in their sixties and whatever we're, were getting out and doing those things yeah, for their yeah, own yeah. enjoyment. And, uh, and of course we talked to Peter Asher, the Peter
1: great Asher was
0: Peter fantastic. Asher. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, a uh, member of Peter and Gordon and, uh, used to share a room with Paul McCartney. Like, well, people, didn't share room, did they did a room, did they? They had rooms adjacent at the top of the house, didn't they? Yeah, well, yeah. Because Paul McCartney was going out with his sister and, and, was, and was invited to go and live there, and lived there for two years. An incredible time. And I'll tell you what I was thinking about. I don't know if you've have, ever had have an, any experience of this, but I've I've always had mates to whom this has kind of happened, and you read about this. That kind of ambitious young person from a family that, maybe doesn't entirely share his ambitions or whatever, finds a family through friends of people who become a kind of fantasy family for him. I don't know if you've ever come across yes. this. You know, people look sort of adopted by other families in the way that Paul McCartney was. So, you know, Paul McCartney, in the height of Beatlemania, all that madness comes down from Liverpool. And decides he can't live with the rest of the Beatles and their and they kind of mess. And, well, know. the rest of the Beatles are living in Green Street, where they're in Mayfair, and they kind of joined in a kind of communal flat, like something out of uh, you know Hard Day's Night, where it was. And you just think that, that I'd, I'd love to have asked Peter about that. Actually, yeah. it's absolute chaos, isn't it? Yeah. So instead, he goes and lives with the Ashes, who are you know these the the three children: Peter, Jane, and and the. The other sisters, Claire, I think I can't remember. Claire, yes, it yes. was. Um, Who are all working as kind of child? had been working as child actors and whatever. And their mother, who's a who's an orchestral musician, and their father is a very seen, very eminent medical man. And they're living. Was it Harley Street or is it Wimpole Street? It's one of those two streets. I think it would well, be Harley Street. Yeah, yeah. Oh yes, and so they're in the middle of the West End, and this is obviously. This is smart London living, isn't it? You know what I mean? This, these are very sophisticated people, aren't they? They are, it's not lower middle class Liverpool. It's, it's a really different kind of world. He went to a posh school, a boarding school, and they were a very well heeled They were the three, all three kids would have been child actors. I mean, it's a media thing. Total, a world that McCartney had no, absolutely with at all. And, and, and I've had mates who've had this kind of, you know, I've met people I went to college with or whatever, you say, well, tell us about your growing up like, well, I was really brought up by a family called so-and-so. It doesn't mean materially they were brought up by them, it means they just spent all their time with another family who was slightly, slightly um more sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. You learn stuff from you. You know, they sat around and they talked to mealtimes and all that kind of thing. And I just thought. The ashes must have partly brought up Paul McCartney during that during that extraordinary period. Yeah, it's it's you know two years is a long time to spend. You know, yeah, yeah. uh, it's it's especially
2: long in your early twenties.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So he is fantastic, Peter Asher, talking about all that and obviously then his time as a manager and a producer. That whole stuff about and- was amazing. He told the story about a bit, a bit Brute Force, didn't he? The guy who had the yeah. single called The King of <laughs> Fur, <laughs> the Fur. The Fur King. <laughs> yes, And I thought it was such a good story. I looked it up and Brute Force would be this guy who'd been a, a kind of a Tom Lehrer type kind of cabaret comedy, piano player, you know. And somehow John Lennon and George Harrison heard about this record and insisted that Apple put it out, but neither Capital or EMI uh, were distrib- distributed. And so 1,000 copies of The King of Foot by brute force were pressed up. And now worth some of them, I think it's changing out for £5,000 a time. Incredible. Which well, brings well. us on to the other person that we've been talking to this week. It was Joel Diath. Who runs uh, a, a, a kind of well? what is a vinyl rehoming service. Isn't yeah, it, it is. It is called Brighter Day Vinyl, um, where he he um, he spends a lot of his time <clears throat> buying the record collections of recently deceased collectors. It, it was very moving about it, wasn't he? You're saying yes. you're seeing. You can tell somebody's personality. You can see their whole life mapped out in their musical taste and often he said he talked about the fallibility of records you know, it was really interesting how he likes the fact they can be scratched and they can be can be written on which would obviously devalue yeah, them. Yeah. You know, but little messages on the top just really i thought it was fascinating he said it's a very very emotional business going through someone's entire life spelt out in records i yeah it must be it would be a be a very good documentary actually. it would it would. Yeah, I can, I could really imagine it when he talked about it. You know, I thought, God, yeah, if you go into a room and you're left on your own with, you know, a few thousand records.
1: but also And, that must and, and be you must more be able and to and read more.
0: people's lives totally. through that, must, wouldn't you? Well, that was the phase where they suddenly got into Seoul and went yeah. to Gordon's yeah. old clubs or whatever. Yeah. But also that must be happening more and more because people are getting to the stage where they don't want to inherit huge vinyl collections, you know. An old grandpa is shuffling off his perch or whatever, and that, there must be tons of that stuff coming onto the market yeah yeah so he um he gets this stuff and uh and then he 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 sells it Or a very very intriguing format which involves uh, a thursday night date on whatsapp at roughly the time the top of the pops would have been on (laughs) and it's it's all very interesting anyway there'll be more about you can find out more about that that'll appear within in the next few days uh, Joel Dath and uh, Sid Griffin. Is Sid there already? I think Alex. I think Sid's by the up, time
2: is this this very podcast oh, is yeah. online, yeah, Sid yeah. will
0: also be online. soon. and then Peter Asher not very far behind. So yeah. there's loads of things going on, and so if you care to support any of these things <laughs> by being a Patreon supporter, we very much value that. We do actually uh, have
2: three new patrons, by the way. Okay. Oh, go on. Who are they? Let's ring them in. Them aboard. Yeah. Uh, first of all, there's Arthur, Arthur Schutten, who is the originator of the 60s bus theory, if you remember. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, the,
2: the 60s is all about a bus. All about and bus
0: transport. You... Very good. Oh, welcome Excellent the theory. Yeah. We like a person with a theory. That's good to know. Who else have we got? We also have Steve Walsh. Hello, Steve.
2: Hello, Steve. Welcome aboard. And... Max. Just, uh, just Max just Max Just enigmatically
0: Max Just enigmatically M-A-C-S, Max
2: M-A-C-S by the way Not M A S. M A C S. right Okay Max I see
0: him as a Bond villain In a black <laughs> roll neck sweater Nefarious <laughs> Max Revolver with a silencer well you're, well, you're very welcome, all of you, and anybody else who wants to join them. Because um, we're planning events for later this year. Yes. We've actually earmarked a date, haven't
2: we, Alex, which people should put in their diary. We have, yes. June the 3rd. Save the date. Mark it in your diary with fluorescent pen because. Um, Something will be announced. Indeed, very soon. This podcast was brought to you by The Word.